0: All right, Uh, my name is Greg Boyd, and I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really good to see all of you here this morning. It's just good to get together and uh, worship God and to study the Bible. If you're here for the first time, we want to give a special welcome to you, and if you'd like to find out more about uh, this church and this body, what we're called to do and what we believe and things like that. Um, As part of the uh, series that we're doing here on the beautiful mess— that's the symbolism here, the beautiful mess— We're having um, uh, several things happening. One is this family experience, FX family experience. We're going to have games and skits and a live worship band. And uh, all the the skits and stuff are biblically based, so it's a good learning experience for entire families. And so we encourage all families to come out and be a part of this Beautiful Mess uh, celebration on Friday, April 20th at 645 right here in the worship center. Also, um, there's a seminar that our own Paul Eddy will be uh, giving on the Beautiful Mess on the Sermon on the Plain and some of the biblical background, taking you further than we can go here in the, in the sermons. And that will be on uh, uh, Saturday, April 28th, from 9 to noon. And encourage you to uh, take advantage of that, that educational opportunity. Also, for anybody who is at all open to the possibility of adopting a child, we have a, a number of families at Woodland Hills that have, have adopted one or more, up to 10 kids. And um, it's a beautiful ministry and a beautiful way of... What could be more beautiful than providing a home for a kid who doesn't have a home, uh, especially your home? So if you're all open to the possibility of this, doesn't mean you're committing to doing it, but there's a, a meeting on Monday, April 16th from 6.30 to 8, where we'll have some uh, professionals and experienced adoptive parents talking about what is involved in that. Um, this is the first time in Woodland Hills history we've ever had this happen. We actually have more small group leaders than we have small groups. Uh, well, yeah, okay, that's good. Good, uh, but it also means that, that there's more room for people to, to join up in small groups. And we really like to get we're, we're doing this as a congregation, an us thing. We like everybody to be going as deep as possible on this beautiful mess series uh, as, as we can. And so, really want to encourage you if you haven't signed up for a small group to do it today. Today's the last day. Supplies unlimited, Visa, MasterCard accepted. Come now. So, um, it feels like an infomercial, but. Uh, Sign up for a small group. It's a six-week commitment, and you you spend time just uh, going through a study guide and some other things. You get to know some people, uh, and it's a good thing. So uh, stop at the community kiosk in the gathering area if that applies to you. That should do it. That should do it. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Luke chapter 6, or you can read along on the screen, whichever you prefer. What we do here at Woodland Hills Church, if you're visiting, is nothing fancy at all. We just preach through the Bible. And so for the last two years or so, we've been in the book of Luke, and we're up to Luke chapter 6. And now we're coming to what's called the Sermon on the Plain, and we're carving out this six-week series off of the text that we're calling A Beautiful Mess. And I want to entitle this message, Blessings to the Messy. Blessings to the Messy. If the shoe fits, hey, we're in the right place. If the shoe fits, we're uh, Some have asked me, why, why are we calling it beautiful mess? It's not obvious what the meaning of that is, beautiful mess. And uh, what I would say is this, and you're not going to understand, possibly not going to understand the full meaning of this uh, expression uh, until after the message, and even then you might not totally understand it. Uh, but hopefully after the series you'll understand it. But I would say this, the, the kingdom, and this is sort of like, like, like one of those Zen koans. You know what a Zen koan is? Uh, those sayings that, like, like what is the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, they're there to kind of jar your mind and shock you into a higher level of consciousness or something. Well, hopefully this will shock you into a higher level of consciousness. Get ready. It's a, there's a new world order coming called the kingdom of God. And this new world order will bring, will, will, will bring a beautiful order to our normal messes. It will bring a beautiful mess to our normal orders. There's a new world order coming called the kingdom of God, and it will bring a uh, beautiful order to our normal messes and a beautiful mess to our normal orders. Let's read the Bible. Uh, Get out of Zen. Let's get into Christianity here. Okay, Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus went down with them. He, you remember, he's at the top of this mountain with his, his apostles, and he, and he comes down, and he st- stands on a level place, a plain. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon uh, uh, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, they were there with him. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and all the people all tried to touch him. Because power was coming from him and healing them all. Mm. And looking at his disciples, he said... And now let's pause for a moment. Okay, Jesus, remember two weeks ago, we had a a sermon series leading up to this. And what we saw was that Jesus went to a mountaintop, spent the night praying, getting the Father's wisdom about who he should choose to be among his 12 apostles. Morning comes and he chooses, on top of the mountain still, his 12 apostles. And what we saw two weeks ago is that the, the, the number 12 there is very meaningful because he's tapping into Old Testament symbolism about the 12 tribes of Israel. And what he's showing there is that what he is founding, what he's starting, the movement he came to birth, this thing called the kingdom of God, is going to be a sort of new Israel with 12 new founding fathers. And they're there to complete and, and carry on the mission of the old Israel. Okay, so there's a new Israel that's being born. Um, So he's up on top of the mountain, he starts this new Israel movement, he comes down from the mountain, and the first thing he does is he explodes with healing power to the point where if anyone just touches him, they get healed. Usually Jesus lays hands on people and, and, and that's when they get healed, but now there's such an anointing on the man that if anyone just touches him, they're healed. And what Jesus is showing there is that the kingdom of God is about action before it's about words. You demonstrate the character and the love and the power of God, and then you speak about it. But, but keep that order in line, because it's only after you demonstrate it that your words have any kind of authority. So Jesus demonstrates it, and then he's going to start speaking about it. And this is what's called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's the first sermon we find in Luke. It's kind of an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount that we read about in Matthew chapter 5-7. through 7. Now, the symbolism here continues to be important. Luke, the, the, he constructs his narrative in a way that directly parallels the Old Testament. Ask yourself this question. Those of you who are Bible scholars, where else have you in the Old Testament ever heard of someone going up on a mountaintop and spent a long time communion with God and then comes down and gives some teachings from God? And, and it's not ring a bell anywhere, it's like... Yes, Charlton Heston. That, that's, that, that's where in the Bible you, you, you remember that. God says <laughs> Moses. Moses was an example of, he went up on the mountaintop. That's where he communes with God. God is now, this is where the, the, where Israel is being officially birthed as covenant partners with God. So Moses is up in Mount Sinai, comes down from the mountain, and he's got the Ten Commandments. And then shortly after that, he elaborates through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and lays out the full covenant that the uh, Jews are going to be expected to keep. And what he's doing there in the Old Testament is he's saying, God has uh, brought us into a covenant with himself, and here are the terms of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant. This is what walking with God in a covenantally faithful fashion, looks like? Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. He establishes the new Israel, the new 12 founding fathers, comes down, demonstrates the kingdom, but now he's giving us the teachings of the kingdom. He's saying, here's what life in the kingdom is going to look like. The Sermon on the Plain is like the Magna Carta of kingdom life. It's the blueprint of kingdom life. This is our charter. Uh, Here he's spelling out what we are to strive to look like. He gave the vision of the kingdom back in Luke chapter 4. His vision statement, that that was where he was quoting Isaiah 61, and he says, I've come to uh, proclaim good news to the poor and to heal the blind and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, the year of Jubilee. That was his vision statement. Now what we're going to get is a fleshing out of that vision statement. This is what it looks like for him to do it, and therefore what it looks like for us to do it, because our job is to be imitating Jesus. So here he's going to lay out the covenant of the New Testament, or at least what life in this covenant is going to look like. Now hang on, because what he says is shocking. Here we go. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, continuing on. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will eventually laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leave for joy. woo Everyone hates me. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Let's pray for a moment. Father, let this word be life to us. I pray, God, you'd open our minds and open our hearts to receive your word. Let it find fertile soil. Father, will you just, through the power of your spirit, collapse, Defense mechanisms that we have in our brain that might try to insulate us from the truth of this message, help us to be open, and to receive your word and be changed by your word, and transformed in Jesus' name. We pray. And all God's people said, "Amen." Amen. So Moses comes down from the uh, mountain and he lays out the covenant. Now, in the ancient world, the first thing you do when you're laying out a covenant is you you, you put forth the stipulations. Here are the rewards for keeping covenant. The the benefits. The blessings. And here are the consequences for not keeping covenant. And so you can read about these, for example, in Deuteronomy 28, where the Lord says, okay, you guys, here's the deal. If you walk with me, I'm going to, you, you're going to have great harvests, your wine presses are going to overflow, and you know, your enemies aren't going to be able to have victory over you. But if you don't walk with me, well, then your harvests are going to be meager, you're going to be hungry, uh, your wine presses are going to dry up. Oh on! And uh, your enemies are going to gain victory over you. So he's laying out the, the, the benefits and the consequences of the covenant. This is what Jesus is doing with these blessings and woes. But what is wild, right? it's absolutely crazy, is that when Jesus lays out the covenantal stipulations, the consequences and the blessings, they look very different than they did in the Old Testament. In fact, they looked almost opposite as they do in the Old Testament, he basically reverses everything. It looks as though he's saying that what used to be considered a blessing is now a curse, and what used to be considered a curse is now a blessing. Just turns everything around. It's absolutely shocking. To Jews who are still under this covenant in the first century, this has got to be blowing their minds. What is this lunatic talking about? Hasn't he ever read the Old Testament? But even today... I mean, honestly, the, the, the teaching is, is positively bizarre. And I don't think you know, hardly anyone follows it for that reason. When was the last time you heard someone saying, you know, I am just dirt poor and I am so blessed. <laughs> I haven't had enough money to even feed myself for a while. or my kids, but you know, I'm just so blessed. I'm hungry and poor and I'm so blessed. And I mourn all the time. What a blessed person I am. And everybody hates me. I am so blessed. People don't talk that way. Maybe in in asylums, but but not normal people. This is an odd way of thinking about things. Same thing with the woes. Woe to those who are rich. When was the last time you found somebody winning the lottery and going, oh, wretched man that I am? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Woe to me. They may be saying that three years later, but at the moment, they're like, Woohoo! You know, I'm blessed. Uh, woe, woe, to me, you know. I just I, I eat good all the time. I'm so well fed. oh, I'm so miserable. And I laugh all the time. Oh, I'm so miserable. <laughs> you know, woe to me. People don't talk like that. That's, that's nuts. It's, it, it, it's, it's opposite of what you would think a, a sane, let alone infinitely wise, a Savior would say. Now, I, I want to, uh, uh, in about 20 minutes, I'm going to explain what I think is going on here. But the first point I want to make, the preliminary point I want to make, and maybe the most important point I want to make, is this. It's so important that we let the shocking nature of this teaching shock us. Before we try to explain it, before we try to, you know, uh, tame it down a little bit or anything like that, let it shock us. Jesus is trying to be shocking here. He's not trying to be shocking just for the purpose of being shocking, like Howard Stearns or something. He's being shocking because he wants to change our paradigm, change the way we think about things. And so he's saying stuff that is meant to jar us. We've got to let it jar us. This is part of the beautiful mess. Uh, We've got to let the kingdom of God mess up our mind. Let him bring a beautiful mess into our normal order of things. The way we organize our world, the assumptions that we make. We've got to let Jesus confront our categories. Mess up our categories. Mess up our presuppositions. Mess up our cultural assumptions. We got to let Jesus mess up our mind by just taking the things he says and letting it hit us and letting it confront all that it's supposed to uh, confront. And we'll find that there's a beauty in the mess that he makes if we'll let him make that mess. But the thing is, we don't like messes. We don't like messes in our brains, certainly. We like to believe that well, we're right about everything, don't we? We like to believe that everything we think we know, we really do know. And, and uh, we don't like to hear people who are conflicting with our, 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 our beliefs, especially if those beliefs are important to us. We tend to, to uh, shut them out. It causes this thing called cognitive dissonance, where in your cognition machine, your brain, there's dissonance, there's incongruity. The facts don't line up. And it causes kind of a tension. And if the area is something that's important to you, it makes you very irritable. We have trouble thinking rationally about positions that we disagree with. They've actually proven this uh, in neuroscience. And this last year, uh, there was a study that was published about six or seven months ago. And what they did is they took people who had strong political convictions. They strapped these machines around their head, did our MRIs and CAT scans or whatever, because we can measure pretty, pretty well now how the brain's electricity is going, what part of the brain is working under what circumstances. So they strapped all the brain mechanisms to the brain, and they, asked them, uh, they presented them with, with certain facts that contradicted their passionate political convictions. And you know what happened? The frontal lobe cortex, which is the smart part of you, the logical part of you, it started to shut down as they were hearing these facts that contradict their beliefs. And the amygdala, which is the stupid part of you, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the animal part of you. It's the part of you, it's the fight or flight thing. It sends out chemical cocktails either saying, kill them or run away. Okay, that's the, the, the alligator part of you. Okay, that, gets, that starts getting stimulated. When, you, when we hear stuff that's not what we want to hear, that disagrees with what we already believe, our, our, our smart part starts to shrink and our reptilian part starts to you know, go on, 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 on turbo charge. And this is why it's so hard to talk calmly and rationally about things that you're passionate about. Okay, it's why other people have that problem, but we, of course, are supremely rational, so we never have that problem. No, we're talking about hot topics, it's, it's hard for us. You know, you just like. We get so angry. That's why so many discussions in this world involve guns. (laughs) It's a lot easier just to shoot them than it has to actually try to understand them. You know, it's just because that's our reptilian brainstem. I think it's part of the fall, but it's there. It's hard for us. It's almost painful for us to really hear something that shocks our system. This is why on occasion it happens here at the Woodland Hills Church that we have what I call protest walks. Um, uh, sometimes people get up because they have to go to work or they get up because they have to go to the bathroom or they get up because their kid's acting up and, or they get up just because uh, you know, I'm, I'm boring the heck out of them so they want to leave. I, I'm fine with that. But once in a while and usually it's towards the front and God bless you, I'm not judging this, is, I'm fine with this, really I am. But there's, there's, they're, they're sitting on, they stand up very quickly and there's a brief stare and they walk out. <laughs> and it's usually... It's usually when I'm talking about a topic that isn't kind of standard evangelical fare. It's a little bit different. And, uh, and bless them, you know, I, I think that's supposed to happen. I mean, if you're not, you know, trigger, tripping some triggers in people's brains, you're probably not saying anything significant. But, uh, but I understand it. It's hard to hear stuff. It's like, this isn't what, I, what I've been taught. And I get a lot of security from thinking that what I was taught was right. So it's hard to even entertain the possibility that maybe there's a different way of looking at it. So what happens is that, it's easy for us when we hear things in the gospel that are shocking to us. And folks, there's a lot in the gospel that is shocking if we really hear it. But what happens is that, that we kind of tune it out. Or what more frequently happens, if we're committed to, to following it, we, we, we kind of reinterpret it. We hear what we want to hear. Anyone had that experience with your kids, maybe with your spouse? Maybe you do it. Uh, We hear what we want to hear. We reinterpret stuff. So we hear the Gospels and we tame it down. We we sort of sanitize Jesus. We get a, a Jesus who happens to be saying exactly what I thought he would say. And agreeing with me about all my values and all my presuppositions and all my beliefs. And I love that about Jesus. You know, great minds think alike and he always agrees with me. This is wonderful. But see, I'm thinking that maybe not because of what he's saying, but just because of what I'm hearing. Because it's much easier for me to hear what I want to hear than it is to hear something that goes against what I believe. So, so there's a lot of things that are shocking in the Gospels, but sometimes some of us can respond kind of like this guy that we're going to watch. Now, here, here, here's a little a preamble, warning here. I'm not endorsing the movie at all that we're going to watch here. Uh, I'm not agreeing with it. Uh-uh. But there's an illustration I want to give you. And see if you can't find yourself uh in this illustration let's watch it i thought i heard you talking to someone i i like you mary I like you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you a question straight out, flat out. I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. And we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, married. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! I read you. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, We hear what we want to hear. We quickly and instinctively reinterpret stuff. So it could be the case that when Jesus says things that are shocking to us, that's not what we expect to hear or want to hear. Blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. Some can respond by looking at the verse intently, nodding their head a little bit, going, oh, okay, so you're saying, so you're saying, blessed are the rich, and woe to the poor. I I hear you. I got you. Yes, because that's what I thought you were going to say. I mean, that is, that just makes sense out of everything. We, we, uh, we, we hear what we want to hear, and sometimes what we hear has nothing to do with what, what was actually said. And this is actually pervasive in this, our, our culture. The, the whole idea of woe to the rich and blessed are the poor has no currency in our culture whatsoever. Quite the opposite. We tend to instinctively assume that wealth equals blessing and blessing equals wealth. The two are almost synonymous categories, especially in, in Christianity. We tend to measure how blessed a person is by how wealthy they are. That's just such an obvious thing. But see, we've got to let Jesus confront our assumptions, our cultural presuppositions. Whatever Jesus means when he says, woe to the rich and blessed are the poor. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But whatever he means, I'm thinking it should at least call into question the obvious mantra, what is obviously true to us, the mantra that says, blessed are the rich and woe to the poor. It ought to call that into question because he's asserting it seems just the opposite. Sometimes wealth may be a blessing from God, but sometimes wealth may be there because a guy's really good at ripping somebody else off. Is that a blessing from God? Maybe they just know how to empty everyone else's 401k plan, and they get very wealthy doing that. Do You want to say, oh, they're so blessed by God. You see, and, and, and by letting Jesus shock us, it can give us the wisdom to maybe start, you know, making some, some discrimination between good kinds of blessings or bad kinds of blessings. The same thing is true of this slogan that I hear all the time, And that, I'm sure many of you hear all the time, and probably some of us believe, which may result in a protest walk, but try to hear me out on this. But it's the whole slogan that America is a blessed nation. We're such a blessed nation. Now, why, why do we think we're a blessed nation? Well, look at all the toys we have. We have way more toys than anybody else, pretty much. And, and, and we're better fed than everybody else and our houses are bigger than everybody else and our cars are much better than everybody else and, and even though we're not perfect we, we have less misery than, than it seems in other, other kind of nations so obviously God is blessing us which some then take to mean obviously God is on our side which means obviously we're righteous we're doing some good stuff and if other nations would just get their act together maybe they wouldn't be so poor either they'd be more blessed just like we are America is a blessed nation we are a blessed people now whatever jesus means when he says woe to the rich and blessed are the poor it seems to me that it has to at least call into question the obviousness of that mantra that we are blessed because we're so rich maybe there's a woe on us because we're rich and and we you know to 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 let jesus shock us is to let us jar jar a little bit those self-evident obvious uh you know things that we say is it really obvious that we're blessed because we're rich is all of our wealth gotten by godly means maybe not. You know, in the 19th century, this slogan was even more prevalent than it is today. In the 19th century, in fact, you've heard, uh, I I hope, of this thing called manifest destiny. Uh, It was considered manifest destiny. Obvious. It's obvious to anyone with any reason. It was obviously God's destined plan that that white Anglo-Saxons come over and conquer America and and, and, and make this uh, our land. It was just obvious. That's how they talked about it, manifest destiny. And part of the proof that it was so manifest destiny was that we won. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we succeeded. And why would God let us do that unless he was in favor of us doing that? And the other proof was that this country got rich really quick. It became very prosperous. And so throughout the, the, the 19th century, there was this slogan that, you know, we are the city set on the hill. We are the righteous people. And the proof of that is that we are so blessed because we have so much material wealth. Now, it didn't occur to a lot of people that there's a little problem here when a good percentage of your wealth is gotten off of the blood, sweat, and tears and sometimes death of African slaves. And the African slaves weren't around saying, oh, we're such a blessed people, look how rich we are. You see, and you can see how offensive that is. We're so blessed, we're so blessed when you're, you're getting it by, by ill-gotten means. It's amazing to me that any of the African slaves ever became Christians when that's what they had set before them as an example. And I'm just saying that, that this ought to cause us to back off of those things that seem so self-evident in the culture and to say, is that really true? Is that really true? Uh, maybe some wealth is a blessing from God, but, but are we really blessed? Because is America as a whole, is the fact that we're wealthy uh, proof that, that we are in fact a blessed people? And what is this blessing of riches done for us? Is it really blessed us? Well, let's think about it. Has, in any criteria that God would use, has it, 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 does it count as a blessing? Has it made us more godly? Has it made us more generous? Has it made us more loving, more kind? Uh, has it made us more joyful, more happy? And I would argue that on every account, the answer is absolutely no. It certainly hasn't made us more generous. Every study done on this shows that the wealthier we have gotten, the more we keep for ourselves. We give a fraction of what we, to our gross national product to helping third world countries, uh, a fraction of what we gave in 1960 we give now, even though the gulf between us and third world countries has increased fourfold. Uh, and all the studies show that, generally speaking, thank God for beautiful exceptions, but the more we individually and collectively make, the more we keep for ourselves. So it doesn't seem that we've really become generous with this. It hasn't produced that, quite the opposite. Has it made us happier? Now here's a little shocking truth that seems to confirm maybe Jesus' perspective rather than the common sense American perspective. It doesn't seem like it's made us happier. This last week, there was a a study published. It was a a multi-year study done by the World Health Organization in conjunction with Harvard Medical School. And uh, they studied 14 nations across the economic spectrum. Third world countries and first world countries. And here's what they found. 9.6 percent of Americans are clinically depressed. They had a threshold for what counts as clinical. 9.6 were were below that. That was the highest of all the countries examined. The second place most depressed country was Lebanon, which shouldn't shock anybody when you consider what's going on over there and has been going on over there for quite some time. And 6.6 percent of Lebanese are clinically depressed. Japan, that we tend to look at as being so rigid and all that social pressure they have and people committing suicide because they can't get into law school. We hear about that all the time. Surely there are very depressed people. Well, 3.1% of Japanese are clinically depressed. So they're three times happier than we are, (laughs) or at least one-third as likely to be depressed as we are. And you know who are the least depressed people in this study? And they said probably this represents the world. The the happiest people on the planet— you would never guess this. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. It's the Nigerians. Nigerians! You some Nigerians in this crowd? You are a happy people. You win the award! 0.8% of Nigerians were clinically depressed. Now, see, think about this. Uh, why might this be? That if you're, an Amer- if you're an American, you're 10 times more likely to be depressed than if you're a, Ni- a Nigerian. The secular article I read proposed a possible explanation. <laughs> secular, now, this isn't a preacher. And they said it might have something to do with the fact that Americans tend to chase material wealth. We tend to chase the blessing, and we shortchange relationships. Most Americans don't have a, uh, a significant number of people that they're deeply related to. We're not, as they said, we're not socially embedded. We tend to be isolated. Whereas in Nigeria, you don't find a whole lot of people chasing the American dream. They they're, they're, they're living hand-to-mouth very frequently, but they have social relationships. They're networked with one another. And any therapist who's worth his or her salt will tell you that one of the key aspects of finding happiness in life is being socially embedded, having people that you love and that love you and support you and, and things of that sort. So is it really an obvious blessing that uh, we're, we're, we're so wealthy? Maybe you could argue the opposite of that. But I'm I'm saying that that maybe there's some wisdom in what Jesus says, but we'll never get to it if we automatically do a Jim Carrey reinterpretation and and say, oh, what I hear you saying is that you're really behind all of our our, our material wealth just as it is. We've got to let Jesus mess with our mind. It's part of the the beautiful mess of the kingdom of God. We've got to let Jesus come in and mess with our assumptions, mess with our categories, mess with our, our cultural presuppositions, mess with some of our conventional wisdom, mess with our sense of what is normal. Instead of doing a Jim Carrey thing where we just let Jesus confirm what we already think is normal, Uh, really that makes us Lord of our own life and Jesus just becomes sort of the cheerleader for what we're going to think and believe and do, anyways. No, no, to to be a disciple is to submit our minds to Him and let Him shock the daylights out of us. Let Him alter, totally rearrange our normal. Because the truth is, folks, there is nothing normal about the kingdom of God. It's a weird, weird kingdom. Aslan is an untamed lion. He doesn't fit into our categories very well. At the center of the gospel is the proclamation that almighty God became a human being, died a God-forsaken death for a little race of snivelly human beings who wanted nothing more than to be free of him. How normal is that? Who would have expected that? That breaks all of our assumptions about what God should be like or what God would be like. He does the opposite of that. He's a very odd God but he is good. (laughs) All right? He's an untamed lion, but he is good. And Jesus is anything but a normal messiah for crying out loud. He doesn't fit any of the categories. He doesn't fit anyone's expectations. And he gives odd teachings. And so the kingdom of God is going to be very, very odd, which is why the Bible says be a peculiar people. Don't march in step with the rest of the world. Swim upstream a little bit. Be willing to look a little bit different. And that will be beautiful, but it requires... That we open our minds up and let Jesus, let Jesus mess with it a little bit. Bring a beautiful mess where we have an ordinary order. He wants to make it extraordinarily messy so that it'll be extraordinarily beautiful. Okay, now let's ask the question: well then, what does Jesus mean? And what he meant to say, of course, was that blessed are the rich and woe to the poor. That's what he meant to say. But he just has having trouble that day. Okay, I'm kidding. Uh, what was he getting at? Look, at, it is just odd for him to say, blessed are the poor. What is blessed about being poor? What's blessed about being hungry? What's blessed about weeping? Aren't those things that are the result of the fall and things that we're supposed to be confronting? Aren't those things that the gospel overcomes? And what's so bad about being rich, really, in and of itself? What's, what, what's bad about being well-fed? Isn't that a good thing? What's bad about laughing and having joy? We've done a little bit of it here this morning. And what's so bad about being popular? Let's try to make some sense out of this. As particularly troubling, It's a very important question because it's not just in the Old Testament where you find this idea that wealth and being well-fed and having joy can be a blessing of God. You find that in the New Testament as well. In fact, we sang about it this morning. The verse, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all time, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. That's a quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The idea that God wants to bless with material wealth is a New Testament doctrine. Now, the idea that material wealth is itself a sign of blessing is not. But it is still true that God wants to bless and prosper people financially. So, how does that reconcile with Jesus' teaching where he says, Woe to the rich? What is it, a blessing or a curse? I want to say, in a sense, it's both. Here's the key to understanding the Sermon on the Plain, at least the passage that we just read. The key, I believe, has to do with the future tense uh, 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 of his teaching. Notice there he he doesn't say blessed is poverty or blessed is starvation. That's not blessed. That's, That's a curse. But what he's saying is blessed are the poor and blessed are those who are hungry and blessed are those who mourn because they will be fed. They will be comforted. Something is coming that puts them in an advantaged position. There's something coming. And Jesus doesn't say that riches are evil or being well fed is evil. But he uh, pronounces a woe over the rich and over the well-fed, those who are comfortable now, because of something that's coming. The future is changing the present, and that turns everything upside down. What Jesus is getting at is this. There is a new world order that is coming in the future. In fact, it's already breaking in on the world. It started with Jesus Christ. There's a new world order that has a new way of doing things, a, a new source of life. It's called the kingdom of God. And the old way of doing things, the old world order, the old pattern of this world is already in the process of decaying and passing away. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, he deals a death blow to the principality and power that's fueling that whole system. That old way of doing life when we strive to get life and we try to get life from our religion, try to get life from our possessions, try to get life from reputation, it is dying away, dying away. But there's a new world order that's coming into being where it, it, that it's just the opposite of this world system, this fallen world system. It reverses everything, it turns everything upside down. It's odd from the normal of this world's perspective. And the promise of Jesus is that if you'll submit to this new revolution, this new mustard seed revolution that's that, that's making inroads throughout this world, this new world order that's breaking into this world, if you'll submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, really truly submit, and live your life according to his teachings, and you're part of this revolution. The promise of God is that you will find a a life that you never could have had before. You'll find a meaning and a purpose and a joy and a power and a peace that passes all understanding. You'll find a river of living water that flows up out of you. You'll find a a relationship with God and with yourself and with your neighbor that you couldn't possibly have had before. You'll find victory in your life that you could never have had before. It's not saying it's all going to be a bed of roses, but you finally will have arrived at the reason why God created you. You're finally going to be a human being that's beginning to move towards the kind of human being that God always meant you and all other humans to be. And among other things you'll find if you'll submit to Jesus Christ and join this kingdom, that there's a security that you have about the future such that however hungry you are now, you know that it's temporary, you will be fed. And however however poor you may be now, you know that it's temporary. You will have all that you need. And however much you mourn now, it's temporary. You shall eventually be uh, 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 in laughter and in the joy of the triune God. But to experience this life, you've got to die to the old life. That's the deal. You've got to die to the old world order in order to be birthed into the new world order. This is what Jesus means when he says you have to die to yourself. Die to the old way of getting life. Die to the pathetic, stupid game of trying to get a modicum of worth by how big your car is, how big your house is, or how religious you are, how much you think you impress the gods. Die to that and get your life solely from what God thinks about you as shown on the cross of Calvary. Let go of the old and now go into the new. And there's a warning with it. And the warning is this. That old is passing away. It's dying. If your heart is in the old, you're going to die with it. That's the woe. You will perish along with the world you love too much. It will take you down with you. There's the good news, and there's the warning that goes with the good news. Now ask this question. Who is more likely to passionately embrace the new world order? And who is more likely to reject the new world order? And the answer isn't that difficult. The ones who are going to be more likely to accept the new world order are those for whom the present world order isn't doing much for them. It's not working for them. And they're in a position where they're more likely to be open to this good news kingdom that Jesus is is proclaiming. When your life is really messed up in the present world system, you're open, you're hungry for the possibility of a different world that will eventually pay off and give you what you need. But if your world right here and right now is working very well, thank you, and, and it, it's to your advantage, it, it's working to your advantage, then you are, all other things being equal, going to be less likely to be open to this new world order. So in this, in this teaching this morning, Jesus isn't saying that starvation is a blessing. It's not. Or that poverty is a blessing. It's not. Or that sadness is a blessing. It's not. It's part of the cursed world that the kingdom of God is supposed to be fighting against. But it has one advantage, and that is that it positions people to be open to a very different way of doing things, to the kingdom of God. Along the same lines, Jesus isn't saying that there's anything intrinsically wrong with wealth or being well-fed or laughing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. In fact, those things are good in and of themselves. They're blessings, but they have one distinct disadvantage, and that is that if you have those things, you can become so comfortable and satisfied with the present world order that you're really not open to surrendering your life to a new world order that is coming. If, you're, if you have those things, you can easily think this. Why would I buy into a new world order when the present one is working so well for me? What do you think I am, stupid? Why would I let Jesus Christ come in and mess up all my categories and presuppositions when I'm one of the few people on the planet who got their act together? You know, what do you think I am, stupid? Why, why would I uh, you know, give up on the competition game striving for to get worth from you know, how big your house is and how big your car is and, or you know, how, how good your religion is? Why would I give up on the competition striving game when I'm one of the winners? <laughs> you know, come on, this is working for me. Or why would I hunger and thirst at a for a righteousness that comes from God for free when my religion makes me feel pretty righteous just as I am? I love this contrasting judgmental game. It works in my advantage. This is the plight of the Pharisee, the bondage of the Pharisee. Uh, why, would I, why would I strive to, to love my enemies and do good to my enemies when hating them and killing them that works so well for me? It's really to my advantage to do that. Well, why, why, would I, why, why would I give up on, on this present world order when I'm advantaged by it? I don't need this new world order. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, woe to you woe to you because this present world order that is working so well for you it's decaying it's going away it's passing away and you're going to pass away with it if that's where your heart is and so he calls us to wake up so let's bring it all together here and bring it to a close the bottom line is this some of us in this congregation or who are hearing by some other means some of us are in the rich well-fed laughing category Uh, others are in the poor hungry mourning category and probably a lot of us are somewhere in between. I, I think, am definitely on the, the rich, well-fed, happy category. Though I can take a little consolation that I don't think I'm in the popular category. I do have people who can insult me or revile me. So one out of four ain't too bad, is it? But bottom line is that I know that I am, by world standards, by historical standards, rich. And a lot of people in this congregation are. What happens when we get asked, you know, if someone comes up and says, are you rich? We immediately think about the percentage of people that are Above us economically, and so we answer no. Do you know that, like 98% of people answer middle class when asked what category are you in? Everyone feels middle class. No, I'm just kind of average. Because I'm thinking about the percentage that's above me, not the, ve- the much greater percentage that's below me. If you're thinking globally, however, and if you're thinking historically for sure, a good percentage of us in this room would fall into the category of being rich. I certainly would. I'm rich. I, I am rich. I am comforted. I'm definitely well fed. A little, little too well-fed, I suspect. Um, and, and, and a lot of us are. And I tend to laugh a lot. I, I, I have a happy life. I, I, I laugh a lot. I, I mourn sometimes, but, but I, I, and I feel blessed in that. And I think I am blessed in that. I don't think that's evil. I don't feel guilty about that. But if Jesus' teaching mean anything, and it's got to mean everything to me if I'm his disciple, there's a woe that he pronounced over me. Woe to the rich, i.e. Greg Boyd. Woe to the, well, the well-fed, for example, Greg Boyd. Uh, well to those who have all their laughter and joy right now, i.e. Greg Boyd. It's a blessing, but there's a woe here. And what the woe means is this. I, as a rich, well-fed, happy person, have got to be very, very careful. I am in danger. I'm blessed. But there's a danger that comes with this blessing. I have to take great care that I don't fall in love with the blessing more than the blesser. And there's a danger to this. I have to take great care that I am not getting too entangled with this. And there is a diabolical pull on things, just like there's a diabolical pull on religion that sucks us in. I, as one of the ones who are in the woe category, have got to have my eyes and my ears and my heart wide open. Here's what John says about it. He says, "Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. You see, you can't you can't serve both. Which is it? Are you in the part of the new world order or the old world order? For everything in the world, the cravings of the sin, of sinful people, gotta get more, gotta get more, gotta buy that. I need that for sure." Uh, The lust of their eyes. Oh, look at that. I've got to have that. They're boasting about what they have or do. Look at my religious achievements, or look how good I sing, or what have you. It comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world, this fallen world order. The world and its desires. And when you're in the world, you'll have perpetual desires. There's no permanent satisfaction. But the world and the desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. I, as one of those who are in the rich, well-fed, happy uh, category, I've got to make sure I am doing the will of God on a regular basis. God, am I, I have to make sure that I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. I've got to always remind myself that there is zero life in the house, zero life in the car, zero life in being well-fed, zero life in whatever I might achieve or do. I have to always remind myself that this world order is passing away. Very shortly, it's going to be gone. I have to always remind myself intentionally for me now to keep an eye on the ugliness of the world, to remember that the world is not a rosy place. I have to keep an eye on that and realize that most of the ugliness is people fighting over the toys that I got. And so that shows that there's a diabolical dimension on this. I don't want to be clinging to this, to be a part of that world system where people are killing one another for this sort of stuff. I, as one of the ones in the rich, well-fed, happy category, have to hold very, very loosely to whatever God has given to me. I have to hold it with open palms. I have to submit it to God continually and say, God, what is your will for this? I have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And whatever he wants me to have left in my hands, he'll leave in my hands whatever he wants to take away. I've got to be okay with that. I've got to learn to live, live with outrageous generosity with the things that he's given to me. In fact, I believe that committing to following the teaching of Jesus and living with outrageous generosity is the only way to keep the blessing being a blessing instead of a curse. The minute it begins to absorb us, the minute we get caught in that vicious cycle where the more we make, the more we keep, it's now a disease. It's not a blessing. But when you give it away, it becomes a blessing. And that's when the verse applies. He wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing. So, but there's a gravitational pull, a demonic gravitational pull to material things, just like there's a dem- demonic gravitational pull to self-righteousness in religious stuff. And it can suck us in. You don't even know it. There's something sinister about it. And now the blessing starts to become a woe. You're part of a world system that is passing away. There's others in this congregation, and I thank God for every one of you, and the, the number of this is increasing, but you don't fit by global or uh, historical standards into the category of the rich. You're not well-fed. Maybe you're hungry this very moment. You're not, you know where your next meal's coming from. Maybe you're not laughing. You're mourning. Or it could be that, in fact, you are wealthy and well-fed, but your life is messed up for a bunch of other reasons. Your marriage is on the rocks, your relationship with the kids, uh, you're you're, you're caught, caught in a web of addiction that you can't get out of. could be a million things. You're in the messy category. And a lot of us are going to be, for a variety of reasons, in between this. Here's what I would say to you. Here's the blessing to you. What's going on in your life insofar as it is part of the cursed world that's messy, that is not itself a blessing. Being hungry is not a blessing. Being poor is not a blessing. But there is this one very significant blessed side of it, and that is this. If you'll take advantage of it. You're close to the kingdom of God. Use the pain of your messiness. This world order that's not working for you, use the pain of it to drive you to the cross with, with passion and with fire. Lay hold of the one thing that's eternal. Grab, grab hold of Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ supply you with what this world is denying you with. You know, and, and, and in that sense, it can be a blessing. And then invite Jesus Christ in on the mess. Just say, God, I'm surrendering this mess to you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, and I'm going to trust that other things are going a- to be added onto me. Invite him into the mess, even if it's a mess, especially if it's a mess that you yourself created. Yeah, you're the one who got in the affair. You're the one who got yourself addicted. You're the one who messed up your relationship with your kids. You're the one who gambled all your wealth away, and now you're pouring on the street. You you did it yourself. Invite Jesus in on that. To the darkest corner, most shameful corner of that, invite Jesus in. And watch what this gracious, gracious, outrageous, beautiful Savior does. As you open up the closet of the ugliness of, 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 of your own guilt, he enters in there, and he'll begin to bring light. He'll begin to bring beauty. He'll begin to bring grace. He'll begin to bring hope. He'll begin to bring hope. And you'll know in your heart of hearts that however bad it is now, it won't always be this way. A new world order is breaking in and now you're compatible with it. God w- will use people and God wants to use the congregation here to help with that. And we're, we're, looking at, we're always looking at ways that we can better minister to the hungry, minister to the homeless, minister to those who are poor. God will use that. But in the end, it's God coming in that will turn that into a blessing. You're close to the kingdom. Will you close your eyes? I want to speak to both categories of people and let the Holy Spirit just apply it as he will. To those in the rich, well-fed, happy category, Holy Spirit, will you just right now reveal to us any area that we are clinging too tightly to? Any area where we don't just enjoy it, but we love it. Holy Spirit, will you reveal any area that we're getting life from, security from, well-being, worth from? Holy Spirit, reveal to us any idol in our life. Just let the Holy Spirit be honest with him. And the challenge for you is will you let it go? Will you... Envision your hands... Is there something that you have clasped in your hands? Could be your beauty. Could be your youth. Could be your car. Could be whatever. Reputation. It's passing away, and you know it. It's what causes you anxiety, worries, and depression. Will you open up your palms? Let the Holy Spirit just open up your palms and let it go. Maybe you want to physically do that. Just let it go. It's a good exercise to do even if you don't think you're clinging to something. Just remind yourself. Will you let it go? It belongs to him. Let it go. And then to say, Lord, it is a blessing. I acknowledge that, but only if I do with it what you want me to do. Tell me what to do. Just surrender to him. To surrender it. To those of you who are in the messed up category, and probably a good percentage of us in one way or another are, can you use the pain of that messed upness to drive you to Jesus Christ like never before? Maybe you're in a a marriage that is so painful. Can you use the pain of that messy marriage to drive you to your heavenly spouse and derive a love and a satisfaction from Jesus Christ that right now your marriage isn't giving you? Or so with any mess that you might have. Let the pain of it, the pain of the... Deficiencies of this present world order drive you to passionately embrace the new world order and the king of that new world order. And then, in your mind's eye, invite Jesus Christ in on the mess. Commit to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust that he's going to add everything else onto you. Know that it won't always be this way, not if you're a kingdom person. You'll eventually be well fed. You'll eventually be comforted. It's not always going to be like this. But even right now, invite him in. Watch if this beautiful king can't start turning some of that mess into beauty. Holy Spirit, will you just apply this to our lives individually as it needs to be applied? Holy Spirit, whatever you revealed right now or shall reveal later on today, would you remind us about it? We get so forgetful. We go right back to our stuff, our old pattern way of living. Holy Spirit, remind us of what you're revealing right now. Rich or poor, we surrender our life to you and ask that you, Lord God, come and bring your beauty, bring your beautiful mess to every aspect of our order that's not of you. Mess up our order insofar as it's not of you. And Father, bring your beautiful order to messes that are there in our life. Build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Praise God. Okay, if you are here and you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I want to encourage you to come forward. Our prayer teams will be up here and would love to pray with you. If you're not a kingdom person and you want to be, stop out of the community area. And just tell them that, and they'll, they'll explain about how to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and join this revolution. Go out, build a kingdom in Jesus' name. We love you.